Well, hello, boys and girls, sports fans, and assorted waifs and strays. It's Denton from Diginomica, and as you can probably hear, I'm recording this from a very noisy airport lounge. Anyway, on today's show, I have Rachel Hopper, who's been leading the community roundtable for, what, 10 years, I should imagine. And today we discuss the results of the second annual community roundtable survey. Over to you, Rachel. So, um, this what. This year was the second year that we really looked at uh, how communities were impacting the organizations around them, meaning the impact of communities, not just how communities are structured. Um, and so we asked some new questions, but we also asked some old questions. And uh, the first key finding is, uh, that we have in the research is that communities propel engagement. And for those of us that have been like in the community space for a while, it's kind of like this open secret that you can get huge rates of engagement from communities. But I don't think it's uh, kind of um, gotten through to the rest of the world. And you see all these efforts from HR or marketing or whatever, trying to engage audiences and they can't figure out how to do it. And so my first message is, Community strategies and approaches are how you get really high engagement rates. And the reason is because communities really empower people to feel seen and heard and like they matter, which is why they engage at high rates. So that's that's kind of the first message I have. And again, it's it's depending on where you are in the ecosystem, that may be old news to you, but it may be brand new news to you. So, so what, what would be your second message then? Or what's the second outcome? Um, so the second one uh, was a little more interesting, which is I think what organizations are facing today strategically is complex problems, like all the relatively simple problems or even the complicated problems. We more or less have an approach to deal with those. We haven't figured out how to really effectively deal with complex problems because they're multifaceted and one solution doesn't fix them. It requires many, many solutions to fix them. And so the second key finding was that communities transform organizations. But when you look at the impacts that they are having on different populations, the number one impact that uh, internal community programs could connect community outputs to was culture and organizational change, which is a complex problem. And communities are complex adaptive systems. So they very effectively address those complex problems. Um, so that's my second key message. And on the external side, what was really fascinating to me is the second highest thing that external communities, so customer facing communities uh, could address was trust and confidence in the organization. So I think that's a really interesting finding. Okay. So, let, let's kind of go backwards on this. When you talk about um, trust in the organization, I mean, we are seeing, at least at my end anyway, very significant debates around the future of work. What does work actually mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we've gone, we've gone through this business of, hey, the gig economy is going to destroy everything. And hey, AI is going to destroy everything. And right-minded people, at least as far as I'm concerned anyway, are saying, well, hang on a second. We need to think about what work actually means. Yeah. yeah. And, and how does that play into, the, into the, the findings that you're seeing? I mean, have you, done, have you been able to do any analysis on that to sort of dig into that a little bit deeper? 
or, or is it or is it a little bit early? Would you say? I don't know. Uh, I think from a mix of research and my client work, what I see is everything is moving to more uh, or looser networks, right? Like if you're a gig employee, you can work for five different companies. If you're an right. organization, you can engage people at a variety of ways from full time all the way down to like hourly work. And so yeah. I'm seeing the future work be being more of this networked, this constellation of networks. And so to me, community approaches are the governance backbone of that to allow people to make choices for themselves and dock in however they would like. And okay. the community governance basically determines the exchange rate. You provide this value, we'll give you this value back. And it's not always financial. So like that, that's kind of how I'm seeing communities segue with the future of work. And the, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, there are, there are two aspects to this. I mean, a long time ago, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, I was, I was getting engaged in projects where it's like, okay, I know this particular group of people, call it a community, if you will. And, and for this particular project, I'm going to need John, Beth, Cyril, Fred, Betty, whoever, right? And, and so we would come together as a, as a group and we would do whatever the project was. We would then disassemble. And then the next project would come along and I'd choose, or they would choose, a different cohort of people, yeah, yep. Yep. based upon based upon a variety of on, on a variety of of, um, of attributes. Whether that was skill, whether that was appropriateness, whether that was understanding, right? Um, it, it could be, you know, you, you just essentially what what it was is exactly as you described, a loosely coupled fellowship, almost I would suggest, yeah, of, of people that could come together and optimally. Uh, perform whatever that project requires. Yeah, yeah. There's a great. Case that was very, very. That was that was very very small scale, obviously. But yeah. but that's how I was looking at the world, and I still look at the world that way today. Yeah, very similar. Um, and it brings up a great case study that we heard about a few years ago. Uh, UBM, the publishing and conference company. Oh yeah. They were trying to build a new product for the future of cities that required information from a bunch of different silos across the organization, right? It didn't fit in any one product line. They needed to create this pretty rapidly. And so they used a community approach. And I think they had something like 6,000 total employees around the world. Something like 10% of them participated in some way to create this new product. Some of them, it was only one comment or an hour of time or whatever but they were able to rapidly develop this very complex set of content across the organization in a matter of months and get it delivered to the market. And so- How successful was that? How how successful was that in terms of the delivered product? I think they they, uh, got to profitability in something like three or four months. I'm forgetting it, it's a few years old, but then they did it again with another topic and they got- faster at it because they they essentially were crowdsourcing across functions internally using a community approach 
and if you think about how that might have happened hierarchically, you think that would not have happened if you had had to go, go up the chain and get approval for an hour of somebody's time who you didn't even know you didn't know. Like, it never would have happened. Like, you couldn't have sorted it out fast enough to do anything about it. You know, that, you know that's, that's, that's really, really interesting because I'm, I'm thinking, I put a tweet out over the weekend where I said, you know, my, my next gig is going to be designing the, um, the, the perfect travel bag, right? Uh, <laughs> Forget technology. I, I just want the perfect travel bag. <laughs> um, I mean, I've, I've got every bag under the bloody sun, if truth be known. I mean, my wife buys shoes and I buy bags, right? And I, I just can't find the perfect travel bag. So I, I just tweeted it. And, man, the number of people who said, hey, I want a piece of that was just unbelievable. You know, people I'd never heard of. I, I guess in a, in a, in a, in a, in a silly sense, that's the way of Sorry, go on. My company needs to get on that. <laughs> but that but that would be you know a, a fairly trite example but I, it's the sort of thing that i can imagine happening more and more it's amazingly productive right like i i think it, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary so we were all together in a team meeting yesterday our team is relatively modest and when you look at how much we're able to produce it's because we operate yeah. rapidly with our community. And if I was going to start up another company, whether it was technology or services or whatever, I would not do it without a community. You can, you can right. work so much faster, so much more productively. Everyone's happier. There's really no downside other than it takes some patience to build up the community, which is the thing that a lot of people don't have. So let's, let's just focus a minute on, on the trust aspect. You and I both know that where we're dealing with trusted people, you just get on with it, right? But it would appear, but it would appear that most organisations really are not as trusted as, as perhaps they would like to think. Is, is that is that true, or or is it changing? So our research didn't necessarily deal with the broader trust issues. I'm probably saying I'm not totally qualified to say that. What I will say is that when you co-create the future reality with people, they are bought in and they trust that because you did it with them. And the general dynamic of communications in organizations today is uh, more of a ping pong style of communications. I will throw yeah. this ball to you. You throw something back to me. I will throw it back to you. And it, it's very um, linear and it's not collaborative and it's, totally embedded in both the way we talk to each other and the way we uh, have designed our processes. Now, I hate to, I hate to use this expression, but um, I guess I have to. Um, <laughs> most, organ most organizations like to think in terms of what is going to be the best practice mm. in order to get stuff done. Now, the problem that I have with it, let me just explain. The problem that I have with best practice is that for me, it's always looking in the rear view mirror because it's been done, right? Um, when, when you're thinking about community, is it best practice that people are looking for or is it something else? Are they, are they, trying, to, are they trying to think more forward-looking and therefore more loosely and therefore maybe not as clear as most enterprises prefer? Or, or are they looking for something else? Um, I think by definition, communities are looser, right? Like they're emergent. The best community, right. you can't 
you can't decide what's going to happen. And, and you ha- it's a negotiated future, right? Like you collaborate to decide what the future is. And I think that is, I think that's a huge struggle uh, for mindsets, right? Not just executive mindsets, but everybody's mindset is like, people are very anxious right now and people get really controlling when they're anxious. And so giving up this idea that we have to control things or that that's the best way. It's in fact, not the best way because you don't know everything. So if you try and control everything, you're actually limiting your potential. Um, And so that's a big piece of community is like letting the community and the organization both have their say. So last week I met um, with a company that I didn't know by its acronym JLL, uh, Jones Lang LaFalle. Um, apparently one of the world's largest uh, real estate um, management organizations. And um, this particular person that I met with uh, runs, basically she runs projects, you know, whatever it is that they need to do, she runs projects. And um, she made a very, very interesting comment. She said, you know, she said the way that we do things means that anybody within the organization who has a voice that's relevant to a particular project can and does come in and become part of that project. Okay. And and she gave an example of um, some sort of, uh, I I can't remember the exact context. It was something that they were thinking about doing something in France Mm -hmm. and some French dude that she'd never heard of piped up and said, excuse me, you know, can I speak? And she said, yeah, of course. And got a whole new perspective on what might, need to happen before that project even got going. And she said that would never, and she said that would never have happened in other circumstances. But it also means that if I have a need, but I don't have the skill, I can effectively put my hands up and say, excuse me, can somebody help me? And they will help and they will take ownership of that particular issue as it relates to that particular project. And, and And I said to her, I said, that is so unusual. It's not something that I hear in companies of, of that size. I, I can't remember. It's 90,000 employees, maybe. Mm-hmm. And she said, huh. She said, well, we're kind of like 250 years old, and I've been here for like nine years, and I can't imagine that it was always this way, but it's always been this way for me. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's partly because we have this entrepreneurial mindset yep. um, within, within the organization. I said, oh, well. Now, we didn't pursue that particular element, and I will do it on a future call with her because I've agreed that I'm going to call her up in a a few months' time to sort of figure out, you know, to to understand better what they're doing. But it struck me that, you know, here is a very large organization, well, 90,000 people is pretty large to me anyway, um, that is is operating completely under the radar as far as I'm concerned in this particular way, which is – Kind of what you're describing, isn't it? As, yeah. as, as the way a community should work, isn't it? And we're actually hooked into jail in a different way. So, um, oh, okay. Be so ironic. Um, the case study that we profiled in the research will be similar to you, but an external case study. Um, we've right. been uh, collaborating with the Canadian Medical Association, and they have about 90,000 members across Canada, all physicians. They do health advocacy work, they're a policy organization. Uh, they are building from the board level down an ecosystem strategy 
to engage their members more deeply and more of them. And I was really struck, John Feely, the VP of membership there, I was interviewing him and he said something really profound and I'll give you the context before I say it because it doesn't resonate the same way. But uh, he said, you know, historically we have these 90,000 members, but uh, we could only deeply engage with 500 of them. And so everyone else kind of had to pay their dues both in time and money until they got to a place where they were influential enough to actually influence the organization and its strategy. And he's like, the younger generation just doesn't want to do that. They don't want to wait that long. You know, like they just don't want to do that. And so they were looking for a way to spread engagement. And he's like, by developing this ecosystem strategy where we have our strategic priorities and they all have communities and then we allow physicians to lead other communities, we can say yes to everybody. Anybody who wants to advocate can start a community, can join an existing community, can can influence the organization. And if they get traction, they influence the organization more. And if you think about the business model impact of going from engaging deeply with 500 to tens of thousands of people, you are opening up like immense opportunity. You are flipping that business model on its head and saying, we're not operating from a risk mitigation strategy anymore. We're operating from an opportunity seeking place um, and trying to do as much as we can uh, versus like the things we can only uh, focus on the things we can control. How far down the track are they? How far uh, down the track are they? We're a couple of years into it. Um, so they've they've launched all these communities, um, but they're they're experimenting and figuring out what works. What are the um, what are the challenges for the for that particular organisation? Because I, I mean, I can imagine. I mean, the way that you know, I'm I'm sort of listening to you, and I'm thinking, wow, that sounds incredibly exciting. But what if I'm you know Joe Normal in that particular organisation has never been exposed to this kind of thing? I mean. So they're, they're actually, well, they're taking a really smart approach in my opinion, which is, uh, they, they are not changing their strategic prioritization process right away. Uh, they have three to five policy priorities every year. Uh, those will remain, but they're creating communities around them and they're investing a lot in managing those communities to make sure they're successful. And then there's a second tier of communities where they're uh, giving grants to physicians who apply for them and saying, we'll give you support, we'll give you funding, we'll give you uh, a lot of stuff to help you advocate for that uh, position because we think it's emerging and meaningful. And so that's the second tier. And then there's a tier below where they're like, anybody can start a community, but we're not necessarily going to focus on you. We're not going to give you support until we see it gaining traction. If it does, apply for a grant, get to the second tier. And so for me, that, that structure is creating a bridge structure from we're not going to like flip a switch and topple the apple cart and all of a sudden it's chaos. Right. We're going to slowly learn 
how to change the balance of power and give voice to more people. Um, and we're doing it by having these differentiated structures within the ecosystem. So we've got, they may end up with hundreds, maybe even thousands of communities, um, but they're not all the same. And they have, they're, they're integrated differently into the internal processes. How well is it working so far? How well is that working so far? Uh, Again, I think they're doing a lot of experimentation. The grant foundation was already there because they did that in the real world. So they would give physicians grants to fly everybody in and have an in-person meeting. So they already had that structure in place. I need to go back and check how everything else is going. I haven't caught up with them recently, but I like it's just amazing to me what they decided to chew off. And what you'll find interesting is it all came from a conversation around data. Uh, really? Yes, because the board was looking at integrated medical records and how hard it was to integrate medical records. And they started to see all these community initiatives pop up and they were like, oh, heck no, we're not doing this fragmentation again. <laughs> we're going to have a consolidated ecosystem strategy so we have the engagement data so that we can actually understand our customer base. Just so, just so that I understand the context, you're saying this is the, the Canadian Medical Association, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Are they, are they for profit or are they... They're a non-profit. They're non-profit, okay. So they're, they're much more of a social type of organization in that context, yeah? Yeah, but they still run like a bit, like associations still run like a business. Okay, okay. So they still have to manage costs, they still have to manage people. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Are you, see, are you seeing that kind of example elsewhere or was that just a standout? I am, and actually where, where I'm... Uh, almost all of my work in the last 18 months has been on these ecosystem strategies rather than a single community strategy. Um, where I'm seeing it more is internally. Uh, there's a lot of uh, very large international organizations that have either launched a social internet or an ESN or whatever, and now they have you know hundreds or thousands of communities and they're trying to rationalize it all. They're trying to kind of help those communities thrive and reach their potential. So that really they have to enable the capacity to manage communities across everyone who owns a community internally. That sounds like a big ask, if I'm perfectly frank with you. That sounds like, wow, that's a huge problem. To yes, it is. Um, but it's also exciting because like with a system that big, I mean, like part of our advantage is we have a lot of standards and ways to measure and ways to organize that really help that. Um, and we've got some st standard patterns, meaning we don't have answers for anybody, but we kind of have the component pieces that you have to put together in order to get to your answer. Uh, and so we're doing a lot of work to help uh, those centralized a lot of people don't like the term centers of excellence. So like whatever you want to call that, whether it's a network, whether it's a community practice, whether it's a center of excellence, we're helping those core teams figure out how to build governance to do that better and training. And so like they're taking the community roundtable and basically saying, we need this inside our organization 
or our community managers across the organization. And so it's where, you know, five years ago, I used to say the future of all management is community management because we're going towards network communications. And people would look at me like I had three heads because they never put that together. Like community was always a separate thing over here that somebody else did to do, I don't know what. But it's becoming a core operational approach to everything. So um, now when I say it, they're like, oh, yeah, we need to train everybody on how to build an effective communities that really engage people and uh, kind of crowdsource work this way. Are there any particular standout industries? I mean, you, you've talked about um, hospital environments, medical environments. Sorry, you've talked about a media environment. Are there, are there other examples that you can point to? So, um, when you say every, when, when, because when, when anybody ever says to me, everybody is like, yeah, right, okay. okay. Let so, me try and think, let yeah. me think of all the exceptions. <laughs> uh, another uh, customer ecosystem example uh, that we've worked with is Esri, which is the big uh, geographic data company. Right. Uh, privately held. They have hundreds of external communities for industries, for practice areas. Um, Thornton Tomasetti is another example from our research. They're a, a professional services company, engineering management. So construct, again, the construction industry. Um, we have another construction client in Europe, Hilti. They build uh, ma- machines and construction equipment. Um, yeah. Uh, Air Liquide, which is a big uh, gas company. There are some of our, our Pearson is another example uh, in the publishing space. So like really, really broad use cases. It's not necessarily the historical, oh, you're a tech company. And in fact, I see the mindset of tech companies around the community concept somewhat limited. They see it uh, they often see it as a pure self-service support play. And they don't see the broad, broader strategic opportunity a lot of the times because yeah. it's been there so long that they're like, this is this thing and this is what it does and that's the only thing it does. You know, that's, that's really fascinating what you've said. Those exa- all of those examples I know, um, and, and they are so very, very different types of organizations. So what is, the, what is the commonality that, that you're seeing across those, those, those kind of firms? Well, what, what, is the, what is the common problem that they're trying to solve? The common problem is digital transformation, right? And I think they, they often are leapfrogging people because they, they did come to things late, right? So they're not, they're not in a position where they have to experiment, really. Um, I mean, they do, everyone has to experiment for their own organization. So it's not that they won't go through that process, but they're okay looking for other examples and saying, Oh, that's interesting. And yes, we, and maybe they, they, they're more self-aware of the leap they have to make um, culturally. (laughs) So they know that, um, they know that it's really important to invest on that side of things because it's not uh, a habitual thing to collaborate in a really agile way. Having said that, 10 years ago, BASF was one of my first big clients. So, you know, this has been happening for a while in industries that are 
seem non-traditional to apply this kind of thinking. Um, we're doing a lot of work with associations because they are communities. This is, this is truly fascinating, um, Rachel, as, as I'm listening to you, and, then, and you talked about the tech industry. The tech industry, we're all told, is incredibly co collaborative. But you're saying, actually, it's not. Well, <laughs> it's, it's, only, it's only collaborative to the extent that it serves its own purposes. Wow. Yeah, and I, it is, like, culturally, they do work, their habitual work is uh, more collaborative on the surface, meaning they're more, much more apt to use Slack and, and be uh, uh, stylistically looser in their back and forth. Um, but they don't actually understand the power of relationships and trust and uh, kind of collaborating cross-functionally some of the time. Why do you think that is? I think... <laughs> Do you want my unvarnished opinion on that? I think of course they, I do. I think they think they know better. <laughs> right? I think they think they know. Like, you look at Facebook and some of the bumbling that's been going on with them, and it's because, like, you think about what happened to Mark Zuckerberg. He's not even 20. He's given a crap load of money. He's had a ton of success. There's nothing in his head that says, oh, you're missing a perspective. I, and I have some empathy for that. Like, he didn't have the time to cultivate that perspective. He was on a, he was on a trajectory. And so I, I'm using his example, but like, he's not dissimilar to a lot of people in tech who have found a really good solution to a problem, but it's not, it's not the whole problem and it's not the whole solution. Well, I mean, we, we could talk about that for, for a very long time. I mean, the way that I look at the tech industry, I mean, you and I are both um, kind of embedded in it to a degree. But the way that I look at it is that there's just so much money around. Yep. Um, and, it's so, and it's so easy to make a lot of money if you want, yep. right? That, 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 that tends to blind people to, uh, to, to other things in the sense that, oh, I, I can just make a million dollars and it's, it's relatively straightforward, right? Yep. Um, which is not the experience of 99.9% .9 of other people, right? Well, well, they have to graft hard. You know what I mean? The, well, so the other thing is, I think this all comes back to metrics. And I think our metrics historically in the business world have been very discreet because like we want the throat to choke, right? So the senior yeah. executive in charge of customer has discreet customer metrics that are different than marketing. How are you ever going to make a customer happy in that environment? You're not because they touch marketing and they cus touch customer service and they're, they're being whiplashed between those two metrics environments. Um, and yeah. then go back even further and you say, um, and this is your wheelhouse, accounting needs to change, right? Like fundamentally, uh, the metrics are driven by the way we run accounting. And if accounting doesn't understand uh, complex experiences or processes, then the people never will because they're still being judged by that accounting model. Please, please don't depress me by asking me to go into that one. <laughs> no, no I, I think that's a, tan that's a whole other conversation. But like, I still remember... Years ago, we were discussing people on the asset side of the balance sheet, and you were like, yeah, they don't exist. And I was like, what? 
Um, and then I think about it, and software amortization is on the asset side of balance sheets. Has commoditized so much. Like, why is that even an asset anymore in a subscription world? Well, it's not, is it? And now humans are the most expensive asset we have, but they're not on the balance sheet. Well, they, so, well, they're not on the balance. They're not on the balance sheet, but they are in the public um, valuations, right? I mean, if you look at if if you look at sort of like the the fang companies, which I'm going to get the numbers wrong here, but it's something like they have total assets as declared of something like 180, 190 billion dollars, right? Mm-hmm. But in terms of but in terms of market value, it runs to the trillions. Yeah, and, and it's like, well, you know, what accounts for that? And people are definitely part of that equation, but nobody yeah, has I'm a good saying, measure of what that really it, means. It needs to trickle down to like everything else because, it, like, and it goes back to my keynote at E two O in two thousand and eleven. I think it was. People are the weakest link, right? The, and the people who have the strongest weakest link are going to be the ones who win. And trust yeah, yeah. that weakest link, the relationships between people, the people are at the end of the algorithms. <laughs> so if the people-to-people connection between the algorithms is not as strong as it can possibly be, you're going to fail. It's the failure point. Rachel, what else, what else did you find when, uh, you, when you ran the survey this year? Well, so the it last really, really interesting. Yeah, the last thing that's pretty interesting is last year we found that community teams really are underfunded. And this year we dug a little deeper and we're like, what's going on here? What we really turned up is community teams and community professionals and community leaders, they know how to build communities. They don't know how to translate that value and what they're doing up through the organization. They don't have good business skills. They don't know how to get things done in their organizations to a large degree. And that is at the moment kind of crippling community teams because uh, executives don't know what community teams need because this is a new, like the community team has more expertise about community building than the executives do. Uh, But the community teams can't communicate up to the executives about what's going on and what they need. And so it's kind of this vicious cycle of business issues. And then you add to that only 25% of community jobs are uh, documented by HR. So formalized, there's all sorts of crazy disparities in salaries and bonuses. 30% of community teams are still teams of one. And so like they're immensely burnt out but there's not good guidance on what it is they're supposed to be doing or how to message that to the rest of the organization. So like uh, it was, it was both for me a call to action to community professionals to say, Hey, you need to like either partner resource, find at the very least, you have to ask your stakeholders to assign some business skills to you, (laughs) but there's, there's an issue that's going to cap, these communities are generating wild amounts of success, uh, but not getting funded. And so they're, they're, something's going to break and unless uh, both executives and community leaders start to kind of bridge the gap between the two of them right now. So that was kind of the last uh, call to action. I guess. That was the biggest call to action of the research. Okay. So 
as as you were sort of saying that, and given that we kind of tangentially uh, talked about finance and my accounting hat, the one thing that went through my mind was measures. Right? Do we have do we have appropriate measures that the business could understand, that a finance guy could understand, where where you know, the buck often stops with the finance department, doesn't it, or procurement, whatever the heck. And, and, and they like measures. They like percentages of this. They like numbers for that and so on and so forth. Yeah. I, I'm, my, my personal view, mm. and tell me that I'm, please tell me that I'm wrong, yeah. is, is that when you think about community and the value that they deliver, it's extraordinarily difficult to put that into measures that the business will understand, okay? Is, is that the primary problem? Um, it is, and for the last year or so, I've been on a, a rant of like, find a friend in finance, like go educate them about community and find out what they need to actually measure it. Uh, we are starting to get measurements. Community platform analytics are awful in that regard right now. Community analytics from a dashboard perspective have not evolved. Like 10 years ago, I was saying the same thing and I was thinking, oh, well, it'll get best over the next few years. It's still horrible. Um, and it's my biggest rant. Um, we do have some approaches that we've used pretty effectively. I have something called a self-evident slide that really applies community process to a workflow. And it was funny because I was on a call with a client, major digital VP at a a huge bank. And I presented this slide and they were like, wow. And I was like, yes, exactly. So like <laughs> we have some ways to do it, but they're not universally distributed. Like most community managers don't, don't even have the business skills that they don't think in that way. Uh, but there are some pretty easy, clear ways to help people understand the value of a community approach. And the, the self-evident slide that I'm talking about is I go in and I analyze a business process and I say, this is the way it happens without a community or a networked communications approach. And here's how many question and answer cycles you go through and this is how many people are involved and this is how long it takes. And then I say, well, if there was a commu uh, operating community of practice where they could ask that question, here's how long that would take. And it would save a lot of time because they'd get answers from people they don't know, they don't know, but have the expertise and the capacity to answer at the time. And then that's not even the most exciting thing about community value. Like there's marginal value there. The process happens faster. But the real transformational value is now it's in a transparent place. And the next person who has the same question just needs to search and find it. And that takes hours versus days or weeks. So in other words, in some scenarios, what we're really talking about is discovering the best way to get something done, to yep. put it in, in crude terms, and then having that transparently available to anybody who who is probably going to have to reinvent the wheel somewhere along the line. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So so that's something upon which you can, in some way, put a put a monetary value, which is what finance guys understand. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And and a and a time value that HR people will understand. Yep, yep. And, and therefore, you, you have the genesis of being able to create a metric that will work for you. Yeah, And that's, that's kind of where we dock in our ROI, right? And we say, okay, how many answers are captured in the community? And then how many times are answers 
right? So how so, much is there a successful search that results in a find? And we measure ROI from that. Okay, so I get it. I get it. But there's a flip side to this though, Rachel, as I'm sure you're aware. And that is, you know, do people actually go into these communities and uh, try to figure out, you know, whatever, whatever it is that's on their mind? And I'm not convinced that, that firms are, are close to, to, to being able to do that. And the reason that, I'm, that I have personal experience with this, you know, we have a very small community of people, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I, docu- I document, for example, I document everything that's going on as it relates to a fairly large project that I've been working on since the beginning of the year. Call after call, because we have weekly calls and where we're chewing the fat about whatever's bothering us. And week after week, I'll get the same goddamn question from somebody else. And I'll say, yeah, but if you looked here, you'd already know that that's a problem solved or it's a question answered or it's an open question that we're waiting to have answered. Why are you wasting my time? Yeah. Um, and, 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 and it irritates the hell out of me. Um, but, well, it does, because it's like, you know, I, I've, I've already answered this. What the hell are we doing on this call dealing with it? I, I don't need to deal with it. It's there for you, you know? Yeah, um, so like that's why you need community managers, right? Like because there's a real significant habit change that needs to happen. It doesn't happen on its own. And it's remarkably, what I find is, is that it's remarkably difficult to get people to change as well, even when it's for their own benefit. Yeah, it is. Um, and you really need to design. You need to like be a social engineer in a way that makes the desired new behavior easy, super easy. You give them a bridge from the old behavior. You make sure there's a social reward for them after the behavior. Like that's what community management is. It's, it's crafting that cultural change so that people work in a different way. Yeah, I, 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 hate, I hate to be, be down on this, but I suspect that that's probably the biggest challenge of the lot. It is. Um, you know, there may, there may well be challenges for... for for community managers in terms of understanding how to build the metrics, that's teachable. That's definitely teachable. Um, But, you know, this business of behavioral change, incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult. That's that's core to what we do. That's absolutely core to how we construct communities. And when you look at our engagement stats, it shows up in engagement. Like the well-managed communities have good engagement. What are the... Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot on this one. Okay. What, are the, what would you say are the top, I don't know, two, three things that engagement, those who are going to get involved with, uh, with community engagement need to understand? What is it that they've really got to be able to do? What are their top skills, in other words? They need to, to be able to share that self-evident story with stakeholders so that their immediate stakeholders get it, that their uh, line of business counterparts get. So like a lot of them are acting like business analysts and applying community in all sorts of ways. They need to have that same story for the finance people, for the HR, all the operations people. Um, And they need enough capacity to have that conversation with all the people internally that can benefit. And that's the one thing they don't have resources for now. Like, a lot of community teams can make sure that the communities they own are engaged, but what they can't do is they don't just don't have the capacity to integrate it 
really well into the rest of the organization and expand the capacity of others to understand why things are meaningful. Like that just takes, to your point, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of resources to do. And I would suggest it also takes a lot of tenacity. You just got to keep going and going and going and going. Yep. Yeah, because again, you know, in my experience, it can be incredibly disheartening. You know, when you're on the umpteenth call about the same damn problem, it's like, oh, yeah. please. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And so it's not like the people who do it well are people who build really good relationships, but don't necessarily have that engineering mindset of like, I do it once and I'll fix it. Like they kind of know mm. humans need to hear something like 13 times before they're really going to start understanding it. That, yeah, I think, that, I, I think I'd come to that conclusion. I'd come to the, I'd come to the conclusion that however distressing it may be, you just got to keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, it like people, like habits are really hard things to break. And externally with customer communities, it's a little bit easier because you're giving people an avenue they never had before. So that access is really compelling. Internally, uh, if you're doing communities for employees, there's usually another way to solve the problem, even if it's wildly inefficient. And if that other approach is habitual, it's much harder to change a habit than to create a new habit. And I, I would suggest to you that, um, that you, you, you know the HP way, right? That, that myth about yeah. Hewlett and Packard walking the floors, right? And that spawned an entire way of, 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 of thinking around management and cultures were built accordingly. And, you know, Nordstrom is another example, perhaps Nike is yet another example where they, where they have genuine cultures that they baked into their businesses. Yeah. yeah. And, and those have been accepted, but you know, it, it's taken what 30, 40, 50, hundred years, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, and now we're, and now we're saying, well, you know, those, those things kind of work, but you know, maybe there is a, a better or different way of doing things, and and people just don't want to know because because a culture is comfortable, isn't it? It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter how crappy it is. At the end of the day, a culture is comfortable because oh, I know what I'm waking up to in the morning, you know. Yep. No, absolutely. And I think this is why we need more people of color and women in the executive suite because people who have been disenfranchised or not, we've we've had to live with discomfort. By being marginalized, you you learn to accept discomfort. White men predominantly have not had to live with discomfort. Okay. And so I okay. think that's a critical skill to have if you're trying to change an organization. You have to have all sorts of uncomfortable conversations. And if you're not comfortable with being uncomfortable, it's going to be really, really difficult for you to manage through that. You know, this is, this is incredible, uh, incredibly interesting to me for a variety of reasons. I mean, not least of which is I, I was trained as a social scientist for a degree way before uh, anything else. And um, if you're trained as a social scientist, the thing that you learn is, is that it's all about what we, we back in the day called inequality. Yeah. You know, I, there's, there's a conversation at the moment going around among my peers where we're saying, you know, they don't value us anymore. You know, we're, we're of a certain age. We may be white, old white men, to put it in those terms, but they, nobody values us anymore, right? Mm-hmm. It's like your experience no longer counts. 
mm. or your experience, or you have too much experience and therefore blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and, and I'm, I'm kind of thinking back to the, the mid 1980s when the automotive industry in particular was, was automated. Yeah. Um, robots were brought in, you know, my father, who was a, 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 a tool maker, he made tools that built the cars, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Those, those skills kind of disappeared. And yet, Today, you still need those kind of people, and they're gone. Well, so like, and, this, and, I I believe that if we get more diversity and everybody gets more comfortable with people who don't objectively look like them, then everybody wins because we become we all become individuals instead of white men or white women or you stop categorizing people and you start treating people as they present themselves to you. And to me, thought, that is Nirvana. Sorry, go on. I, that, that's just, for me, that's the end goal of culture is like, we don't have this culture fit issue. Like that's to me kind of bullshit. Like what is culture fit? And, and people don't like to be challenged. And it's part of why you and I get along so well is I love to be challenged. I like, it makes me think. And so that's a great thing. Um, a lot of people have been socialized where that's a confrontational thing and it makes them anxious and it makes them uncomfortable. And so they, they just won't say what's on their minds. And that is so ineffective from, from a salt, problem solving perspective like if, if okay so yeah, yeah. anyway go on rachel i, I was, yeah. was going to say i i i do apologize for, for interrupting you there rachel but i've been having a, a i put something out the other week where i talked about diversity in the context of creative thinking okay because i i have to say that i'm really really uncomfortable with the focus on women or, or on gender yeah, I'm very uncomfortable with the focus on uh, lesbian and, and gay issues, and and the only reason that I'm uncomfortable with that is because they are exclusive to that particular issue, right? Yep. They they are exclusive to those issues, and and so what I've been talking about, and this was uh, something that came as a, as a result of something that I read by a guy called Bert Leukert, who was I think he was CTO at SAP, where he talks about real diversity comes in creative thinking, okay? He said, it doesn't really, what he's basically saying is it doesn't matter whether you're black, white, sky blue, pink, green polka dots, dots, stripes, whatever the hell, but you have to be able to be somebody who thinks creatively, thinks differently. And that resonated with me because I, I genuinely don't care who you are, yeah, <laughs> provided so that you can, provided that you think, think in a way that makes me think more, right? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I, I get that perspective. And for you personally, that's great. But all, there's all these cultural systemic issues where we make assumptions about people. And so if you're a person of color in the U.S. today, you are treated differently. You're not given the benefit of the doubt that you're a creative thinker. And so you won't even share your creative thoughts because you know you're going to get questioned about whether your intentions are good. And so, yes, that's the end state is that we can all just treat each other individually and we're all confident and comfortable enough to say what's on our minds. But because of some systemic cultural issues, 
not everybody feels comfortable sharing their whole selves and they they won't they need to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt that it's okay to share their their uh whole selves and so there are some systemic issues that have to be addressed before we can get there well you know maybe 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 i'm fortunate in the sense that you know i i I live in a rainbow family right yeah um you know there are um people whose heritage is um Black Caribbean, there are people whose heritage is Indian, there's people whose heritage is Pakistani, um, there are white guys like me, you know, I mean, we really are Heinz 57, that's how I describe it, I say, hey, yeah, I joke about it, we're Heinz 57, you line us all up, there's 20 odd, 30 odd people in the family, whatever the hell it is, and it's like, geez, is this one family? <laughs> um, you know, it, it, there are there are gay people in the family as well. So for me, it's just, I don't care. Because <laughs> I sure don't see I, it, right? I get that. And I, I felt that way for a long time myself. And I've had to really think about privilege and systemic issues. And you can't just assume that if you get a crew together, that uh, those... N- mental models are going to just fall away. They, they don't. And so if we don't do something actively to make sure they fall away, then they won't. Boy, this is going deep, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's all about, like, here's the, here's the issues on the tech side, right? You can't solve social problems with technology. Um, hey, you sure about that? <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure about that. Like, technology can absolutely help, but at the end of the day, if you don't apply the the human connection at the end, like, you're turning into bots, right? Like, yeah. and that, that's yeah. not our like the potential of humans is not to do repetitive work. It's to do that creative work. And so like that requires, that requires support and empathy and challenge from other humans. Uh, The technology never provide, like as much as the chat bots are nice for getting like basic information. I don't think we want to go into a world where our dates are robots. Like I just don't. Rachel, this has been a very wide-ranging conversation. I certainly didn't anticipate it going in this direction at all. But I guess what I'm taking away from this at the end of the day is that there's a heck of a lot of work to be done. Would you agree? Yes, that, that I absolutely agree. I think we're starting to see the leading edge of approaches of like things that might be successful. But yeah, there's a heck of a lot of work to do. Okay, so what's going to happen in the next year, would you say? Are you, are, you, are you one of those rare analysts that doesn't like analyzing things to, to make predictions? <laughs> kind of. Like, you know, what the way I make predictions is, you know, I look at what I'm doing on the advisory side and I see that yeah. the leading edge of what's going to become normalized in a couple of years. Um, like the, the thing I've been talking a lot about and it's in the research this year, but for the first time is this ecosystem strategy of what is your, you don't, you don't just have one community as a big organization, you have hundreds and thousands of communities. And so how do you design and, and rationalize that ecosystem so that communities can be friends, quote unquote, and link together? And how do they all play nicely together? And like, uh, what's the collision of like all the motivate, like say one person is in 20 of those communities, like where, 
what's that doing in terms of whiplash or motivations to that one perk? Like, how do you normalize that and, and organize it in a way that is not just chaotic? And that's what you're working on over, uh, yep. at the moment and presumably over the course of next year. Yep. Okay. Rachel, we've been yapping for over an hour. It's, it's probably way beyond anybody's attention span except ours. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Dan. Uh, it was great to chat as always, and I appreciate uh, your interest in the research. Okay. Thanks so much, Rachel. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.